Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of a changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If call if calls if times get tougher, even if they don't, I guess I said calls because today is Thursday. It's time for a listener call show. It's episode 1876, and uh, we'll be taking your calls that came in over this last week to the Think Line. That number is eight six eight six six sixty five. Think, boy, we're gonna really have a a heck of a show today if I keep falling over myself like this. I, I don't know what it is. Anyway, the think line is eight six six sixty five. Think eight six 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 five. T h i n k. What are we gonna talk about today? If I can get my uh, my tongue in the right part of my mouth, I guess. Uh, I'll give you a quick update on the Work with Jack weekend coming up on Saturday. Your last chance to sign up for it. There are a few spots still left. A little update on Speak Pipe and what we're doing with that. Fall has begun. We'll talk about a little lesson in life and TikTok goes the clock. My take on the Oklahoma shooting, dealing with sick trees, balancing family prepping with community living. It's the best way I could sum up that subject. Responding during a bombing if you're near it. What do you do when you're somewhere and boom, bomb goes off. And you're okay. Do you shelter in place? Do you run? What do you do? The answer is a great big ass. It depends. Um, next, prepping the ground for tree planting. You're going to be planting trees this fall, early winter. But what can you do now to have a good experience? Uh, some updates on my view on the current long-term economic outlook. Function stacking grapes and dogs. Yeah, really, we're going to talk about that. And bottling wine the easy way, a.k.a. the Spearco way. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Hey guys, why don't you show off your survival podcast pride by shopping at tspgear.com where we have awesome tools like the Pocket Shot, Slingshot, and the TSP Edition of the Genesis Knife by MT Knives, along with shirts, patches, and more. Learn more at tspgear.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1876, because the episode is 1876. Alex Shrugged has three for us at TSP Wiki. He has USA 100 years in the making. We have Food, Fixin' and Fightin', the first college in Texas. And here comes the telephone. In other news, Budweiser is introduced to Missouri. Budweiser means from Budweiser. It is a hit in the USA, but American company will be fighting trademark lawsuits. Into the modern day, the city of Budweiss actually has a patent from the old king to produce beer, and the European authorities take that patent seriously. Yeah, so what? We have Budweiser here in America, nothing you can do about it. Korea is now an independent nation, Japan says, so under gunboat diplomacy, Japan makes the kingdom of Shosin, uh, later the Korean Empire, into a tributary of Japan. The treaty calls the kingdom an independent nation. It's in writing, so you know it's true. And Nicholas Otto invents the four-stroke engine. The engine compri compresses fuel without exploding and running, ruining your whole day. The key design feature, its fuel efficiency, will make it a success. Later, the engine will be adapted for automobiles. Nicholas Otto. Think about it. 
automobile. Okay, there you go. Anyway, I'm going to read USA 100 Years in the Making because of how much Alex threw into it that he can't cover in this segment. I have some thoughts on that when I get done. I'm feeling guilty because so much is happening at once that I can't get everything in. As the United States celebrates its 100th birthday, the entire world is undergoing the second industrial revolution. Electric motors are no longer toys. We have the fuel-based engine. Telephones are emerging. I didn't even mention Maxwell's equations, for God's sakes. Albert Einstein is going to take those equations and run with them after he is born three years from now. Wyatt Earp gets his first job in Tombstone, Arizona. Jesse James and company are robbing trains. Melvin Dewey has invented the Dewey Decimal System used in libraries today. Freaking Tom Sawyer has been published. I can't get it in. And all these people can't even imagine where it will all lead. Um, about 20 years before the Civil War, Alex mentioned that within 40 years, a person that was a, a, a child wouldn't recognize the world. Well, I think she said within 20 or 30 years, they wouldn't recognize the world they were living in. This is the second industrial revolution. This is it, it, It's happening all over again. Somebody that was, you know, let's say 10 years old in, let's say, 1875, you know, a year earlier than this date, could even understand how monumentous 1876 was. And the, 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 let's say the five years up to 1880 after, how much starts in these five years that radically transforms not just the United States, but the world. And to me, it's a lot like where we are right now. There are things being done right now that when people look back 25, 30 years from now and study it as history, they're going to go, well, of course that was momentous. Of course that was huge. Of course that transformed the world. And, and they're going to they're gonna marvel at the fact that we didn't get it, that we sat in the middle of this tempest and didn't understand the radical transformation that's coming. And when you look to the past, you understand the present better. This is one of those times. This is a time of incredible evolution and incredible disruption to what people came to expect. And there's a lot of bumps in the road up through the 1900s. But all of the amazing things that will come on from, you know, after World War One all the way up to World War Two and, 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 and 20 years thereafter, all have their genesis in this period, this period of time from about 1865 to 1885. This is a tremendous period of time in American history. It, it, it's unbelievable. It's actually a tremendous period of uh, history in the world. And so many amazing things are coming, and so many amazing people will be born and begin to transform the world in this period of time. We're living through it again, right now. And we're at a crossroads where we're either going to do amazing things with it or we're going to make our lives a hell of a lot worse. And I'll save my thoughts on that for a question later in today's show. Uh, the other thing I want to point out, though, is Alex has been doing this for several years now. And I, I think that maybe people don't get the whole wiki thing. Wiki means please help. Please edit. Please contribute. If you're like, I don't know how, go to tspwiki.com. And you'll be able to see videos that show you how to edit and add to wikis. And I think that maybe people look at what Alex has done as like this sacred thing that should never be touched or changed, even though it's in a wiki. I don't really want to see anything that he's put up there changed, but 
guys, you can add to it. If, if you know of an event that you'd like to see added, you know, do some research, put together a little blurb on it. I'd like to see this fleshed out, especially as we go forward from this time forward. Especially as we go forward. And it's like a job. I mean, if you want to do just one year that you know one thing that you want to add, you can do that. I don't think it would offend Alex at all. I think he'd feel good about it because he's saying right here, I can't get all this in. Because what's going to happen is over the next hundred, um, the next hundred episodes leading up to the bicentennial of this country, the amount of things going on and the information available is going to increase. When we started this, oh, I guess in the 1300s, there was a lot of times it was thin information because we only have so much information. This is, this is the story of us from this point forward. Most of what we know today began here in this time, in this next hundred years. Just my thoughts by Jack Spearco. With that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, the main stuff for today's show. Now, even though it's a call-in show, i got a few things for you that aren't call-in things, but I do think you might want to know about them. Uh, number one, we do still have a few positions left uh, for the Work With Jack weekend, but I'm going to call that uh, done to this evening. So tomorrow morning, whoever's registered is registered. I'm shutting it down. The reason why is we need to call a certain place that's a surprise and get the total number of orders in for catering. And we're going to, instead of cook for you guys with all we got going on, we're going to have food that my wife will go pick up and bring home, and it'll be amazing. But I need to know how many people. So we want to call that order in on Friday, so we're closing down registrations as of what I'll do is I'll say noon Friday. So noon tomorrow, that will podcast for tomorrow won't be out. It'll be done. So if you want to sign up, just go to survivalpodcast.com. You can find out more about the workshop. But we're going to be doing a lot of work with the aquaponics system that's part of the big workshop at the end of October. And especially if you're not able to come to that, you might really enjoy being here. Next, I want to give you a SpeakPipe update. So I put this thing on the site called SpeakPipe. Had a few people use it. I've had nobody use it in a way that I can actually do anything with it. I had actually a great question that came in today or yesterday on it from, uh, I think you're up in Canada. I can't remember what the question is now, but it sounded all broken up. Like, so I don't know if there was a problem with the microphone or whatever. Anyway, SpeakPipe is a thing where you can go to the website, you click a button, you ask a question for the show, and then you hit send, and I get an email. So far, it ain't worked very well. So I'm going to give it another week, and uh, if I don't get any decent calls on it, I'm going to assume that it's just not really worth having, and when the free trial runs out, it's going to go away. I'm not going to, I'm going to pay for it. So I just wanted to remind you, it's there. Uh, you can use it, but it seems like the call-in number works best, 866-65-THINK. Um, next up, I want to just kind of give everybody a, a quick kick in the ass here, right? Because I think every once in a while we all need a kick in the ass. Tick tock, tick tock. The clock ticks for us all. We, we we have just crossed another season. It is fall officially today, September twenty second. Um, for members of, of various pagan faiths, this actually is a, 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 a very significant day. Um, my take on it simply is, it's to me the point where we realize yet another quarter of our, our year, of our 2016, has passed. While it's not the financial quarter to me, it's a much more meaningful quarter because it's a, it's a full season. It is summer has come and gone. And I know that sounds kind of crazy for some of you in the South because it's still hot as blazes. And, you know, the, the thing is, temperatures don't read calendars and different regions have different things. But um, it is fall. 
and uh, as hot as it is here today and has been this week, uh, we have a major uh, change in our temperatures coming over this weekend, and we'll have highs in the 80s instead of the 90s, which will be nice for a change. But I feel it even though it's hot, right? I, I, can, I can tell that this change is here, that these sequences are ongoing. I can tell in the mornings. When I go out very early in the morning, um, just a few weeks ago, except for this little aberration, we had a cold front come through. Except for that, even when you got up at like 6 o'clock, you know, like what my dad used to call the ass crack of dawn, right? Um, when you went outside, you could already tell like it's, it's still, it's not as bad as it is in the middle of the day, but it's, it's warm out. Now when I get up in the mornings, there's a coolness, there's a crispness to the air. The, the winds are shifting. The daylight is beginning to descend. This is the, the fall equinox. So uh, this is where you get equal, depending on where you're at, obviously, but you get equal amounts of, of darkness and light. This is, uh, you know, we don't get that here in this, 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 uh, this particular geography, but that's kind of the point. This is where we've, we've equaled out. And from this point, our days get shorter and our nights get longer, all the way up until... The winter solstice on the 21st, we have the you know shortest day and longest night of the year. And the reason I bring this up mainly is just so you'll think about it in reference to your dash, as I call it, or your hyphen. And if you haven't, if you're new to the show and haven't heard me talk about this before, when you die, they're going to put you in a, in a hole in the ground and put a stone over your head, or they'll put you in, they'll burn you up and put you in an urn or something like that. And if you're like me, you'll probably be scattered somewhere. Use whatever of my body's left that can help somebody else, and then just incinerate me and send me out to sea or set me on fire or something like that. I I, I don't care about my shell when I'm gone. Um, and maybe there won't be a dash, but somebody will write something about you, even if it's just an obituary, and it will say the year you were born, the year you died, and there'll be a dash in the middle. That dash, that hyphen, is you. It's everything you ever were, everything you ever did, and everything you ever left behind. And when it comes to making your life matter, the time is now, and the time is always now. And as we cross thresholds like months and quarters and years, it's good to remember that time is moving. You have to think about it like this. Imagine that you had a giant barrel, and that barrel sat in a corner of one of the rooms in your house, and it was full of little marbles. And each marble represented the potential, what you could get done in a day, what, what, what meaningful impact you could have, people you could help, advancements for yourself, your family, your life. And that, that, that marble has a, a, a specific amount available that can happen in that day. You only get 24 hours. We all have to sleep, etc. Your health has an impact on it. But there's, there's a maximum potential in that marble. At the end of the day, whether you've used that potential or not, whatever's left of it, you throw it away. And when the barrel's empty and there's no more marbles left, they write that epitaph about you and they put up that dash. And imagine how many of those marbles had wasted potential if we don't make the most of it. Tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock kicks for, ticks for us all. Um, on that note, kind of a somber thing, I, I want to give my take on the Oklahoma City uh, shoot, or the Oklahoma sitting in Tulsa, Oklahoma shooting near Tulsa, where a black man was shot um, by a female officer with, with three other officers present, and there's video of him with his hands in the air, and yes, non-compliant. And, and I wanted to do this today because I've got a lot of 
email about it, but I haven't gotten any calls, so I decided to preempt you know, a, an email show that's going to be all the way to Monday because I want to kind of go on record with my instincts of what happened. And I actually do think, in this case, that the authorities are going to have to admit what happened. And the reason I want to do it now is because if it comes out, I don't want people saying, well, he, you know, he's just saying he knew, right? Um, and this is, this is, again, this is a speculation, but I think this is a speculation based on logic and reason. And it was, if you follow me on Facebook, I said this is what happened the day I saw this video for the first time. I immediately jumped to this conclusion, which some people think is a bad idea, but I do have a little bit of knowledge of law enforcement training. So this is what I think happened. I, I don't know whether this guy was on any drugs or not. They said they found PCP in his vehicle. Something stinks in Denmark there. I, PCP is not a common drug in America. Heroin, crack, pot, yeah, PC. Who the hell does PCP anymore? I looked it up, and apparently some people still do, but I've never met anybody. And I've met people that use drugs in my life, and I've met people that have used hard drugs in my life, you know, like meth, you know, um, again, meth, heroin, cocaine, crack cocaine. I have never met a single person ever that says, oh, yeah, I use PCP or I used PCP. I just haven't. So that just stinks. Something's not good there. I don't know what it is. And I will point out that in the past, um, They have done research and shown that a lot of these test kits that the cops are using are showing positives for, like, things that aren't drugs. So, you know, is it preliminary? What kind of forensics are actually? I, I don't know. But it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if the car was full of freaking dead babies, right? Other than you'd be like, okay, well, he's dead. I, but it's still, the, the cops could have known that. And, yes, he had a criminal record. Nothing serious. He had a... Uh, from what I heard, I can't find this online now, in, in like many, many years ago, a concealed weapons charge, he had a gun on him, he did three years of, or six, three or six months suspended sentence, and, and has had been no real trouble since then, and then the only other thing that's, that's happened anytime recently, he had a DUI, and he was non-compliant during his DUI. Okay? So, you have a history at least of a man that may have had contacts with law enforcement, and may have a history of non-compliancy. Okay? But what happened here is his vehicle broke down on the road. And I see people saying, well, why didn't he pull his car off the side of the road? Because it broke down, and sometimes you don't get to decide where your vehicle breaks down or stalls out, and it was stuck. And passing motorists called in and said, hey, this vehicle is blocking the road. It's dangerous, so they send law enforcement out. Now, what should happen when a law enforcement officer shows up and there's a person there and there's a vehicle there is, can I get you a tow truck? What I think happened is this female officer was first on scene because it was a big black guy. She started barking orders at him. And he may or may not have been on substance. He was coming back from a music appreciation class at a community college, though. I mean, just to put it in perspective, that seems to vet out, too. And he probably felt like bullshit. Why the hell are, are you yelling at me, pointing a gun at me, telling me what to do when my, my crime is my vehicle stalled there? And I think this is an operational problem, and this is what I'm talking about when I talk about institutionalized racism. I believe if I was standing there, me, 
And this lady rolled up on me and said, what's the matter? I would have said, my car's broke down. She would have said, do you need a tow truck? I would have said, I've already called AAA. And she would have said, we got to get your vehicle off the road because it's, it's dangerous. And I would have said, well, it doesn't move. And I had this happen to me, something very similar. I had a truck, a work truck, stuck in the middle of a road because I couldn't get it off to the side. I didn't have enough momentum when it died. Okay? And the cop pulled up behind me and used his push bars and pushed me to a service station that was nearby to take care of the vehicle for me. But because this was a big black guy, and we have a guy in a helicopter saying he looks like a big bad dude or something like that, what the hell? How do you know you're in a freaking helicopter? And people make people are saying it was a chase or whatever on Facebook. No, no, that's not what happened. But the guy was not compliant. And he, he's 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 where the video picks up, he's walking back towards his vehicle with his hands in the air. Other officers pull up, there's dash cam video and helicopter video. The officers follow him, they're telling him to comply. I believe the officers when they say he didn't comply. Okay, that's fine. One officer decides enough of this and deploys a taser. At the almost exact second the taser is deployed, the female officer shoots him in the back. He, he, he stands there for a few seconds. He falls down and dies. And they rendered no aid on the video to him whatsoever. They let him sit there and die. Not that they probably could have done anything anyway. Now, this is what I think happened. That female officer was amped up. And when that taser went off, She committed what you call a negligent discharge. I don't think she wanted to kill him, but I do think she is responsible for his death, and she did not act appropriately. And the reason I say that is, there's two things you need to know about law enforcement training here, and, and I can have cops pissed off at me if, if they want to be over this, but you guys are going to know everything I'm about to say is true. In most departments, every department I've ever talked to a law enforcement officer in, if you're carrying a taser, and we're not talking about the little ones you can touch people with, ones with the wires and you shoot somebody and you can put them to the ground, throw them, throw them, like you're going to comply when you get shot with one of these things. Okay? If, and you think, well, there's a certain requirement for that use of force. If the officer would have been within his rights and duties and procedures to grab you and push you to the ground, he can use a taser on you. My brother-in-law as a police officer said, if I can put my hands on you, by the same logic, I can tase you because you're non-compliant. So the, 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 the threshold for the use of force with a taser is very low. The threshold for use of force with a firearm is very high. It is imminent anticipation of something that is risking your life or the life of somebody else. That's where lethal force gets you. So it's a much higher threshold. So... Officers are trained just like civilians are. If you think your life's in danger and you fire a shot and, and, the, and the threat doesn't go down, what do you do? You fire a second shot. She did not fire a second shot. I'm not suggesting it would have been better had she done so. I'm suggesting we can infer certain things from that. When she shot him, all that happened was his hands were either already down or they lowered. And it looks to me like, I'm not 100% sure, it looks to me like his hands came down after she shot, not before. Okay? When she fired that shot, she knew it was an accidental discharge. The sound of a taser discharging, especially when you're amped up, is somewhat like the sound of a gunshot. Not the same, but it's a pop. She, when that went off, she fired. That's what happened. And because she's someone that shouldn't have been doing that job. 
She was not qualified if she can't handle that kind of pressure to be a police officer. And, and, and you know, Trump, blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while, said maybe this woman doesn't need to be an officer. Maybe she needs to go away. Maybe she cracked. Right? And, and I, I think that's exactly what happened. Now, here's the thing. All the defenders are saying, you don't let a suspect go back to his vehicle. It's dangerous. There's video of that happening before and somebody dying because of it. Okay, and, and he put his hands in the window. Here's the problem with that. And considering the source, I consider it valid. Yesterday, I had to go pick up some material for my farmhand to unload on our some sheet mulching work. And I ended up listening to a guy named Brad Stinchfield, who is a local AM radio guy here in the Dallas market. This guy is right wing as it gets. He would be the tip of the feather of the right wing of the bird, the outside feather. That's how far right he is. This is a guy who would probably polish cops' boots for them. Not with his tongue, like some people are insulting him, but he probably would happily polish a cop's boots. That's He has a problem with this. And what he stated is, he looked at a photo that I haven't found yet or looked for yet, but again, considering the source, this is not a guy that ever comes out on the side of, of a victim in this. He's always behind law enforcement. The attorney for the family has produced a blown-up photo from the video that shows the window is closed. You can't put your hands inside a window if the window's freaking closed. And I want you to think about this. If he's standing in front of the window, and he puts his hands inside the window, and he gets shot... His natural reaction would have been what? To grab on. Because he was standing for a while after the shot was fired. Instead, he just kind of stands there and then falls to the ground. All the other cops stand there and look. Why? They all knew, and now they're lying, and now they're trying to cover their freaking asses, and specifically, they're trying to cover her ass. I believe, I believe... The system will bring justice in this. Now, it might not be sufficient for some people because this is not this is not first degree murder. This was not she intended to kill him, but this is clearly a criminal offense, and she should face criminal charges. And I think she will. I think this will go before a grand jury. I think a grand jury will bring charges. I think that the sentence will be light. Because it's in the commission of her duties, the suspect. There's a lot of mitigating circumstances. I don't know if she'll do any prison time. She will not be a police officer again, and she shouldn't be. Is it sufficient? I don't really think so. I don't think the system will work sufficiently. But I think the people that are on the other side of the debate will want something that's equally unreasonable. How long should this woman serve? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I know that any time for a cop is hard time. So there is that. But I think the, the bigger thing is, my personal feelings is, the, the right course here is this woman should be paying restitution for this fam, to this family. And this is a flaw in our justice system. She did, th this, this officer didn't commit a crime against you and I other than she killed a fellow citizen. And, 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 and violation of the proper performance of her duty. The, the person, the, the people she harmed most are the people that love this man. And her debt should be more to them than to some arbitrary term. I'm still not saying she shouldn't do any time, but I am saying that 
our justice system lacks the connection between the, the criminal and the victim in this situation. Do I think she's a bad person? That she thought, well, not, when she got up this morning, I'm going to go out and find a black person to hurt. No, I don't think so at all. I think she is unqualified for the job because law enforcement has become a, a, a profession that is being staffed the wrong way. What we've done with law enforcement, and I believe this is connected to all of the problems we're having, is we've decided in 99% of situations, law enforcement across this country, police departments, everywhere, you have to have a college degree to be a cop. There's nothing cops do that requires a college degree. Nothing. Nothing at all. And you can say, well, when they move up and become lieutenants or chiefs or something, okay, fine, all of that, just plenty of time during moving up for whatever training and knowledge is necessary, and not everybody gets that high, so the people that have the aptitude get there. And I'm not saying if you have a college degree, you shouldn't be able to be a cop, but they made it a requirement. That was the first part of this problem. The second part, and this has been with us for a long time, if you're too smart, they don't let you be a cop. If you don't believe that, there's a Supreme Court decision that upheld that that's okay. And I'll, I'll find the article for you. I'll put a link in it today. But the average police officer in America has an IQ of about 103 to 106. This is not dumb, okay? I'm not going to be like Alex Jones, who's obnoxious and insulting the law enforcement and says border, it's borderline being a retard. That's what Alex Jones said. That's not. It's slightly above average. Slightly. The, the Supreme Court decision I'm talking about was a gentleman that had an IQ of 125. This is not Mensa level. This is not genius, but it's smart. 125 IQ is a switched-on guy that knows things. Okay, They said he was too intelligent. And like the threshold is right around that like 120 mark that you don't get on the force. And I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell you, this goes back a lot longer when I was 18 years, or 17 years old, actually, and trying to figure out, do I join the Army, do I do this? I thought about becoming a Pennsylvania State police officer. And we had a family friend who was a statey. That's what we call him in Pennsylvania. I don't know where you call him, anywhere else you call him that, but we call him stateys. Um, and he came and talked to me and said, if you go take this test, because at the time, you took a physical and a, and a test, and if you passed both of them, You got on a list, and when there was a spot at the academy, they called you, and you went, and if you made it through the academy, you became a state police officer. It was pretty cut and dry. He said, you're going to have to miss some questions because you're a smart kid. You're going to score too high, and they won't hire you. And you're going to have to balance it and figure out how many to miss. And that kind of turned me off right there. I didn't really want to do it. So this is an older thing. The problem, though, when we then say you have to have a degree, so now we're looking for people that are college-educated with a four-year degree with an IQ under 120. And I'm telling you, you get a certain type of person when you look for all of that, and a certain percentage of them, not all of them, a certain percentage of them are going to be people that probably shouldn't be cops. But you're going to hire them because by creating these artificial boundaries, you've limited the number of people you can hire. Because now you got to find a person with an IQ under 120, with a college degree, that will pass the background shack to be a cop. When there's all kinds of young blue-collar kids coming out of high school that would do just fine in this profession, but you can't hire them. And it's created a mess. It's created a mess. It's created a whole lot of hiring people that don't have the right aptitude. 
it's and I'm going to I'm going to piss off women, but it's created a whole rash of hiring female officers that really don't have what it takes to be an officer. Now, I've met some female officers who are outstanding police officers, but I've met a few that were complete pea brains. Complete pea brains should never be in a situation where they could have to end up in the situation this woman ended up. I'm not saying it was her. I think she's unqualified from her performance. I don't know if she's a pea brain. I had two female officers come to my house one time. What had happened was there was a guy, one of these, it was actually two kids, where they're selling the magazine subscriptions, that scam. And um, I'm like, no, I'm not interested. And they wouldn't leave. So I tell them to get off my property. And like they're holding their balls, walking really slow, messing around. And I yelled at them. I don't remember what, but it was a pretty violent threat, like get out of here or I'm going to your ass like something kind of like that right um and one of the neighbors we were new to the neighborhood heard it and didn't see what happened and it figured well maybe he's in or threatening his wife called the police so they come out of possible domestic these two women were about 105 pounds a piece they're standing there talking to me they think they're dealing with a domestic you got a six foot guy that weighs over 200 pounds and they're standing where i could have chinned both of them in one motion and knocked them both to the ground and had the two of them handcuffed each other, knocked out. And, and, and these two little women are sent, and they sent two, because they're women, to a domestic with a guy like me. Right Now there was no domestic. They said, can we talk to your wife? I'm like, yes, yeah, sure, come on here. And, and uh, you know, like, well, can we go in and talk to her? I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, nah, you guys don't go in my house. That doesn't work that way. I'll get her. You know, they want to separate us. They, they talk to her, and they find everything out, and they go, but these, these women shouldn't have been doing that job. I'm sorry. They, 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 I, I know you want to believe like anybody can do anything they want, but if your job is restraining large individuals and you're 105 pounds, you're not qualified. And we've, we forced that in it too. And the whole thing has made a mess. And then institutionally, we are treating, I don't care if you believe this or not, they are treating black individuals differently than white individuals. Because I've been pulled over, I've had contacts with law enforcement, and even where I had one time where the guy was rude, I, I was never in a position where I really felt like I was being treated unfairly. The guy was just a rude ass. And I've seen enough of it happen with people of color who were doing nothing any differently. And I'm sorry, we have to fix this problem. But I've gone on record now, and I, I'm going to bet you when it all comes out, what I just told you is going to be what really happened. The taser went off. She flinched. When she flinched, she killed a man. That's what happened. And there was no need for that man to be shot. Unarmed, not reaching in the vehicle because the window was closed. My case is closed. Let's go ahead and take your first call. I know that was a long intro, but it was really half the show. Okay. Hi, Jack. It's Candy from southern Oklahoma, about five miles north of Lake Texoma. I have a question about my brand new homestead. We have post oak trees and black oak trees in this area. We've got mostly post oaks and about two or three black oaks from what I've seen. And our post oak trees seem to be dying. We've got about six dead trees on the property. Um, they were dead when we got here, so I'm not entirely sure what caused them to die. Some of our post oak trees have this black fungus looking living thing on them and i'm just wondering what your suggestion is um i'm not exactly sure what that is i'm doing research i'm not finding a lot in that area have you ever seen anything like this and is there anything that we can do to stop our 
probably around 50 oak trees from dying because it seems like it's spreading from one to the next, or it seems like it has. Thanks for all you do. The uh, the the best answer I have for you here is to follow How- Howard Garrett's sick tree treatment. And I have a link in the show notes for that, but I'll give you the basics of it. Uh, the reality is most trees are planted too deep. And in this case, they're actually probably trees that grew from seed. They're, they're native trees that just grew. And so they weren't planted too deep, but matter has accumulated around them. Soil's been built. And it is most likely that they are too deep in the ground. And I have to admit, I've planted a lot of trees too deep, even up until the last couple of years, because you think, put the tree deep in the ground, right? No. No, 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 no. You want the root flare exposed. So the the number one way you can tell is a tree too deep in the ground as you look at it. And if it looks like a telephone pole coming out of the ground, if you don't see a dramatic flare at the ground level... It needs to have some material removed. And, and, and so here's what you have to determine. Since it sounds like you have a pretty sizable place and there's a lot of trees, how many of these trees are worth the effort that it would take to save them? And which ones do you want to try to save? But the first thing to do is start removing material, expose the root flare. And I mean dramatically. Dramat- I mean, you should When you think of like big, ancient, gorgeous, amazing trees, what do you always see at the bottom? You always actually see roots traveling laterally out. If you expose roots, even if you expose more than you should, a root will form a bark and protect itself where it's exposed. If you bury a trunk, the bark will rot away and it will not like root like sticking a piece of mint in water or something like that. So you can go the other way too far and it's okay to a degree, but you can't You can't bury up the, the, the trunk of that tree. It will cause problems eventually. This is the number one thing you can do. There's a couple ways to do it. Uh, you can do it with like a rake or, or whatever. The problem is you're going to do injury to the roots. You really either want to rent or find an arborist that has a thing called an air spade. And if you Google how to make your own air spade, you can actually make one with an air compressor uh, pretty daggone cheap, far less than they actually sell for. And what an air spade lets you do is it basically uses blowing very high-pressure air to move dirt without damaging the roots. And you expose the roots all the way out to, like, the drip line, but especially right around the trunk of the tree. And then you want to provide amendments, and these you want to use sugars like dry molasses, compost, rock minerals like green sand or, uh, or um, I can't think of the other thing, but, but just Google rock minerals, and you'll, you'll find different things like that. And you want to provide that to the tree. And you also want to aerate the tree root system by poking holes in the ground of around six to eight inches deep. You want to try to avoid like actually hitting the roots while you're doing this, but this can be done with a, a specialized tool. It can be done if the, if the soil's soft enough with like, a, you, you can go to like a, a pawn shop and find like an old golf club, right? Like a, like a, like not a driver, more or less like a, like a wedge, right? Like a, like a not a number nine or number eight wedge. You can usually find them dirt cheap for like a couple bucks and just break the, the, the end of the club off, and you've got a great poker then. I have one I use for my fire and for doing this type of thing and, things, and kind of aerate as much as you can out to the drip line and past it. And you want to do that before your rock minerals and before your compost and stuff like that because as you spread that, some of that will work down into those holes. And, and that's your – I don't care what's wrong with a tree. Unless it's like broken and you're trying to like emergency graft it or something like that. When you have a tree that's not doing well, 
that's always your best course of action. And uh, I'm taking Howard Garrett's. I need to finish it. I have like four more modules to do, and I get my certification. His uh, his, his National Organic Certification uh, Program. And he has, like it's like streaming video you watch and you take a test. And he has photos of what he means by dramatically exposing the roots. I wish the hell he would publish some of those photos publicly on his site instead of just have text there. Because I heard him say it a lot of times, but when I saw it, it was totally different. So just try to think of when you go to a nature center or something, you see a really beautiful tree, and you see roots laterally coming out. That's what your tree should look like. And when you're planting your trees, plant them higher than you think you should. Spread those roots out and leave a flare. And what I mean by a flare is the trunk should come down, and it should go out laterally, not, again, if it looks like a telephone pole going in the ground, your tree's too deep. Now, what do you? I know some of you are saying, "Well, I already planted a bunch of trees, and they're already too deep, and I don't know if I, okay." You go watch your tree, and if it does well, it does well. But if you start to have problems with a tree, and everything else seems right, that that's the course of action to take. And I do have a, a link in the show notes again to the, it's called the Sick Tree Treatment. And if you just want to look it up yourself without going to the site, if you do Sick Tree Treatment Howard Garrett or Sick Tree Treatment Dirt Doctor, you will find it right at the top of Google, and it is a proven technique and If you're someone that's in a situation where you feel like you need some help with this, if you can find an arborist that's familiar with this, they can come out and do this for you. Most of them own an air spade and what have you. Hope that helps you. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Uh, Daniel here. Um, I had a question for you. Uh, it's pretty broad. Um, I was just hoping you could share your thoughts whatever way you want to take it. Um, but so in thinking of survivalism, Oftentimes I see, you know, there are individual things that you can do with your family to try to help yourself. There are kind of community-wide things that you can do to try to help your community. But there's also, you know, a lot of things that you can do in the community to try to help yourself. And when I when I say that, the kind of thing I'm thinking about is just kind of what everyone hates, what we all kind of feel obligated to do, which is networking for professional development, for professional opportunities. And it's just got kind of ingrained in my in my mind again recently, you know, spending so much time doing gardening and trying to kind of do some new initiatives at home, and that really actually takes a lot of time, um, especially, you know, if you're working full-time and your partner's working full-time, and uh, how do you, at what point would you consider, you know, the things that we often think about as survivalism being less important than kind of career development, networking, putting time towards meeting people where it might help you, you know, professionally uh, in the future versus, you know, kind of what I think we often think of is, you know, how can we kind of work with our community to help strengthen our community? Um, anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. Bye. Well, it's almost like you're asking two questions here, and one is kind of, When do you just stop worrying about preparedness and urban homesteading or whatever and focus on your life? And then the other one is, well, how do you balance all of that with maybe doing things that are more of a preparedness thing community level? So here's here's my answer to this, and you're not going to like it because it's not going to be the answer you're looking for. It's going to leave still on your plate making the final decision. It depends. And it depends on a lot of things. And... I guess it, what it always comes down to is balance. 
if you if all you're doing is going to work, coming home, and working on your garden, and that's the only thing you do, and you're not happy doing that, then you need to figure out how to make some time to do other things that would make you happy. As far as like networking, working on your career, and stuff like that, that stuff has to be priority to some degree. Um, I, I personally believe like gardening and stuff like that. You should be doing that no more than five ten hours a week. Unless you like it and you have the time and you want to. You should be setting up your system so they don't require constantly working on them. The whole point of a garden is you plant it, it grows, you eat it. So we, we kind of talked about that, you know, using chickens for that with Justin Rhodes. But there's other ways to do it. I have no problem laying down weed blocker. A lot of people do. I'll lay down weed blocker, I'll poke holes in it, I'll plant through it, I'll throw wood mulch on top of it, automate And, and put in some sprinklers, cheap stuff from Home Depot using freaking plastic pipe and head sprinkler heads and a valve, and you can put that on a timer and water it every couple days. You don't have to do it. Now, when I lived in Arlington, I watered all the time after work because it was a thousand degrees out and because it gave me a chance to have a beer and wind down and, and, and come back to life for my family. But I could have set that up so that wasn't necessary. I just used it as, as that. So we shouldn't be always working, always working, whether it's at home or at the job. We, we have to find balance. I think the biggest thing, and kind of I can hear it in your voice, you need some friends in your life. And, and you need to not worry about, well, are these good friends if times get tough, right? Are these good friends as, as, as a prepper group or something? Just If, if they're good friends, then they're, they're, they're good to have around when time gets tough. And there's a tremendous resiliency from having a good network of friends. And I, I think the way to approach friendships is don't approach it as networking. Don't approach it as any kind of agenda. Find people that you want to be friends with because you like them. And then the networking happens. I mean, I, I can't tell you how at different times in my life where I ended up like, I don't have a job now. And people fell over themselves to help me. And they weren't, they were never the, the business contacts and stuff like that. They were pure business. They were always the friends. I know a guy that knows a guy that's in your industry. I'll talk to him for you. Oh, I heard of him. We'd love to talk to him. Things like that. So, and if there's a problem that's like a disaster that's regional, neighbors helping each other is extremely valuable. When I lived in Arkansas, some of the ice storms we went through, It was a very small group. It was only five families, but everybody looked after each other. Everybody took care of each other, and we spent time talking to each other before we needed to. So I, I think what, you're, what you, you need to do is find some balance and, and maybe find some level of activity to engage with other people, uh, whether that's joining a darts league or a bowling league or I don't know what. I mean, that, don't go do that because I said those things, but I'm just, I'm just trying to put out there that it, it doesn't have to be you know, survival, prepping, homesteading related. Go enjoy yourself. Go live your life. Remember, we talked about the dash today. It, as important as it is to realize the potential of that marble you're going to throw away at the end of the day, some of that potential needs to be spent doing things like having fun. I personally believe, you can, you can quote me on this, except it's really from Richard Bach, the meaning of life. You know, it's, it's so complicated, it's so hard, sages can't tell you. No, the meaning of life is education and entertainment. That's it. That's it. We're here to learn, and we're here to have fun. That's the real reason we're here. And you can talk about all these meaningful things that we should be doing, and, all, and I'll say, well, that's educational or entertaining. 
And no matter what you say, well, you're learning from that. You know, even if it's hard and you're, you're sacrificing to help somebody else, so you're not having fun, well, you're learning. That's it. Education and entertainment is the entire reason we're here. And we need to balance learning and having fun. And then also be providing our basic needs for ourselves at the same time. And it always comes down to balance. So it depends, but you have to make the call on that. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Paula in Pennsylvania. In light of the pressure cooker bombs that have gone off in various cities like New York City, Elizabeth, etc., I wanted to ask your opinion. If you were in those areas, say shopping, going out to dinner, whatever, and you heard an explosion that would remind you of that, would you think that the best course of action would be to shelter in place or to run? Because you see so many of the people on the news clips they show running for their lives. I'd appreciate your opinion on this. Thanks. Bye-bye. This is another really big it depends. It really is. I think the first thing is basic situational awareness in advance of anything happening. For instance, I've talked about this before, but when we go to a restaurant, um, I case the place. I case the place from two angles. One, if something happens, what are my ways out of here? Number two, if I was going to come in here and do something bad, how would I come in and what would I do? And then I position myself so that I'm in the best position possible relative to the rest of the people with me, my wife, friends, whatever, so that I'm willing to take control of that. If I'm with somebody that I kind of trust, sometimes we even talk about it together. Or we just, you know, I've been places with, uh, with Brian Black. We just kind of look at each other and kind of look around and kind of nod, yeah, okay, I got it, you got it, right, yeah, okay, you sit there, I'll sit here, girls are there, and I always think that way. But it's not just sitting down in a restaurant or a theater or something like that where you should do that. You should be doing that actively as you walk around. Now, I'm not talking about paranoia, but if I'm walking down a street, where's my side streets? Where's my avenues of egress and ingress? Like, how do I get in and out of places? Where can I go? Where can I take cover? And if you do it of a very relaxed state all the time, it's not a paranoia. It, it, it's just more a basic survival instinct so that when something goes off, you've already in your head planned a couple different things you can do. And then as you look at the evolving situation, the one that makes the most sense is what you do. Now, here's where we have to think really, really hard about this, though. Up till now, these people setting off bombs, it's been amateur hour. Right? Remember... Uh, uh, what it was Barack Obama's fa uh, famous stupidity saying it was that he was dealing with ISIS, it was like dealing with the JV team. Well, when you're dealing with the JV team, the problem is they often turn into the varsity team and they often turn into the, the college team or the pro team. Okay? And just because we've been dealing with, with amateur tactics doesn't mean we'll continue to because the people like this are watching and learning. Every time somebody goes, the person next has learned from the past experience of the one that was caught, made the mistakes, whatever. And it's relatively easy. If you know you're going to do something in a crowded area and you know kind of the orientation of the crowd, that if a bomb goes off over here and everybody runs like you said, what direction they're going to run. And what's been done with a lot of these IEDs is they're set off and there's a second one that is designed for exactly that. The crowd runs, and there's a time delay, and boom, that second one goes off. That pushes the crowd in a third direction, and boom, another one goes off, and then maybe boom, one goes off right where the first one was. 
And that's another tactic that gets used. You set off a bomb. One bomb goes off. Boom. No bombs go off for a while. Rescuers and helpers run in. Boom. Another one goes off right near the proximity of the first one. So you're in this catch-22. So running with the crowd is probably not the best idea. Sitting still may not be the best idea. And running to the first explosion you have to balance your desire to render aid with the risk in that situation. The best course of action is to figure out a way to, as quickly as possible, without panicking, remove yourself and put something thick between you and potential threats. Now, does that mean you might duck into a building where another bomb is? Yeah, but what are you going to do? Sit there and wait? So my take would be, where can I get cover and then continue to egress away from the area. I, I, I kind of hate to put it this way, but I'm going to have to think like the bomber, and if I were here watching this, how would I get out of here? That's the path I want to take. You have to think like the bad guy to either catch or defeat the bad guy. That doesn't mean you act like him, but you have to think like him. So I, I, I can't really tell you what you should do, because every instance is different. If you're in a, a city street... And you've got buildings lining both sides like a dense urban center. And a bomb goes off on one side. If I'm setting this plan up, I know everybody's going to immediately run across the street. And I've got a back, uh, kind of a back reflector for my explosion. And that's where I'm going to set my second explosion off. I also might think, well, they'd run up or down the street. I would try to go without going to where the first explosion was. The opposite of the way the crowd's going. The opposite of the way the crowd's going. Because if the guy knows what he's doing and he's doing a multiple detonation, he's planned this. And you're better off going the opposite of the obvious way. In most instances, it all depends. If you're far enough away that you're probably not part of that ping-pong strategy, just go the other direction. Just leave. Get the hell out of there. Get out of there. And I believe the same thing can be said about shootings. If you, this is how shootings work. If a shooting's going on, run, hide, fight in that order. Run, hide, fight. You get as far away as you can. If you can't escape, you hole up and you look, you start planning right there. And you gotta think this way. If this son of a bitch comes, I'm gonna kill him. Even if you don't think you have a chance. Even if you're a 108 pound woman, like I talked about, like these two cops they sent to my house, right? You gotta think that way. You gotta think, what can I gouge the eyes with, the throat? And you, and if you have people around you, you gotta get their mind thinking that way. This, when his son of a bitch gets here, we're, we're killing him. We're not, we're not arresting him. We're not holding him down. We're going to kill him. Eyes, throat. We're going to take him out. You control the weapon. I'm going for the throat. You're the big guy. You, you know, whatever. You figure this out. And you figure out anything that can be used as a weapon. When you're dealing with a bomber, though, you don't have that. You can't fight against a bomb. you got to get away. And you got to figure out the, the most expeditious way to get away, and you got to watch the crowd, and you have to be thinking that way in advance. Now, you said, if I live in those areas. I, I, I hate to put this this way. There isn't those areas. The next person that sets off a bomb in the name of jihad or some other stupidity might do it in a rural town in Kansas. In fact, it's an incredibly effective terrorist uh, tactic to do something like that. 
because it makes you feel like, well, there's nowhere safe. Like that happens in the big cities. That happens at airports. Whatever. You know, I live out here in the middle of Sheboyganville. Well, if Sheboyganville feels threatened, then everybody feels threatened. But this is the other side of this. And this is what people have to control their fear. Even though you should walk around with a sense of heightened awareness at all times, situational awareness at all times, and planning at all times, you don't get paranoid, and you don't really worry about this. Because how many people died in car accidents the day those two bombs or three bombs went off? How many people died of heart disease on that day? How many people died not in a car wreck, but hit by a car? How many people died in their bathrooms and fell in their, in their, in their sink and cracked their, their, uh, their, their tub and cracked their head off a faucet? Terrorism kills less people than just about every other way people die on a daily basis. Around the world, let alone here in the United States. And, and, and worrying about it rather than just planning for just in case does no good whatsoever. And the powers that be want you to be afraid. Whatever your government wants you to feel, try to feel the opposite. Because whatever they want is designed to control you and to make you compromise. And they're instilling a culture of fear in our people when we should be instilling a culture of boldness in our people. I don't quote a lot of presidents because I'm not a big fan of any of them. But in the world, words of Ronald Reagan, no nation has ever been attacked because they were perceived to be too strong. And no people are attacked because they are perceived to be too strong. You attack people when they appear weak. That's how criminals think. Whether they're people that murder with bombs or people that just want your wallet. You look for the weak. Be strong. Be strong in every way. And understand that, yes, you could be somewhere a bomb goes off, you're dead instantly. You could be driving down the road tomorrow and get hit by a gravel truck, too. That doesn't mean you're not going to go to the grocery store. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. It's Greg from the Houston area in Texas. My question this afternoon is, how do I prepare the ground for planting trees this fall? Details. I bought 18 apple trees from Kevin over at Cuffle Creek and was not able to get them all planted this spring before they budded out. So I potted up about three-quarters of them, and need to plant them this fall. So how do I prepare the ground to make sure they're easy to plant and that they have the best chance for success once they're put in the ground, period? Well, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about this from a standpoint of where you're at. You're in, near Houston, so you're going to have one or two types of soils. Uh, I'm 99% on this. Um, you're either going to have black, blackland prairie clay soil or you're going to have sandy soil. And either way, you probably don't have to do very much. You probably could just plant your trees at the right depth and, and, and they'll just grow there. I mean, you're in a great climate. You have very, very mild winters. You have plenty of rainfall. You have almost no rock to deal with in that area. So you're going to get a deep-rooted system and your trees are probably going to be fine. The steps I would take to kind of make it better, and you got to figure out with how many trees you're planting, do you want to do like an area? Do you want to do like a, a circular pattern where each tree is going to go or what have you, is I would consider getting yourself some dry molasses and some lava sand or some green sand or something like that uh, and, and wood chip mulch, just na natural shredded up wood mulch. 
and I would go to the areas that you're going to do this, and I would give a good sprinkling of your lava sand or your green sand or something like that, along with some uh, dry molasses. And how much? I don't know. A, 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 like a like a coffee cup, like you know, like the the paper coffee cups, like one of those per tree. I guess about that of the molasses and maybe maybe double that of the, of the 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 green sand or the lava sand or whatever. If you're going to do a whole area, then you can get you know recommendations per acre for that, and then you just say, well, it's not an acre; it's actually a tenth of an acre. Someone do a tenth of that amount and spread it out. But just in the area where the tree's going to go, and then cover that with about four inches of wood mulch, and just wait till it's time to plant. And you'll find that soil that 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 really hard to dig clumpy uh soil will be starting to develop a lot of structure if you wanted to gild the lily a little bit then lay down an inch of compost uh then do your rock minerals and your um uh, your dry molasses on top of the compost then do your wood chips and water that in a little bit and, and that's about it that's all i would do for trees you're not doing a garden you're planting trees And trees grow in, in places like here, where you can't even imagine how the hell they're alive. So down there, you're probably not going to have any problem. But remember my earlier comments about don't plant it too deep. Everybody digs a hole, throws the thing in. And most people get, don't plant the tree so deep that you cover the graft, if it's a grafted fruit tree. If you even have to think about that, your tree's too deep. Most of your trees that come as potted trees, they're too deep in the pot. Make sure some of the roots are exposed when you plant your trees. That's the number one problem. I think it's it's admirable that you want to plant these trees in the fall. That's that's brilliant. I would say plant them more toward Christmas than what we think of as mainstream fall. You know, go ahead and get this prep work done this month, and then wait till December. You know, uh, you can wait till January if you want to, um, and, and get you know they'll be re ready for spring. Also, another thing, if they're potted trees. Get yourself some big buckets or a stock tank or big tubs or something. Fill them with water. And the day before you're going to plant that tree or trees, take them out of the pot. Let them soak in that water. Let them soak overnight. Shake the dirt off of them and pull the roots out. You're going to find a ton of those roots going in circles. Pull them out and point them in different directions. Build, dig, dig a shallow, wide hole. And get someone to help you and spread those roots out if you can. If you have some that you can't spread out and they're circling really tight, get a sharp razor knife and cut them off. And if you do that, that's more important than the ground prep work. Because if you have a circling root and that tree grows over time, that root will, will girdle. It's called circling and girdling root syndrome. And the root will actually grow into the trunk, cut the cambium off, and the tree will grow itself to death. That's, that's so too deep and not unballing the roots and not soaking them. Here's another thing. Never do this. Never take a tree out of the pot, plunk it in the ground. You gotta soak it. Even if you decide you don't want to pull the roots out or whatever, you think it's fine. You don't want to do what Jack says. You don't want to do what Harry Garrett says. You, you still need to soak it. What can happen is you take that, that potting mix that that tree comes in, you put it in the ground and it's, it dries out. It becomes hydro, hydrophobic, and you can soak the hell out of the ground, and the water will literally roll off of that. And the roots will end up bound up in there, and they won't get out into the native soil, and you can have you can water your ass off, and a tree will still die or do really poorly, 
or to just grow really slow. If you've done this already, remember I talked about the garden, uh, the golf club? If you have a tree that's like just not going, one, expose the roots some, but two, soak it and get that golf club and go down into the root ball with that golf club, just back and forth, back and forth. Work till you soak, you saturate that root ball, and that tree will turn around for you. So there you go on that one. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Tim in Minnesota. Um, I was re-listening to a bunch of your podcasts in the past, like Death of a Neighborhood, Economic Shell Game, and the next great recession. I'd love to hear a follow-up of what you think in those were accurate, what you would change, if anything, and when you take a look out uh, going in the future. Um, just to elaborate a little bit, I know you've spoken a little bit about robotics recently and such. I'm just wondering if your your thoughts on that have all changed or if you're pretty much still on track from where you were. Long ago, back in about 2010. Thanks much. Bye. You know, um, economic shell game is really more about how the money creation is a scam. Uh, but some of the other stuff that I did way back in the day, we're talking like 2009, 2010, uh, I think I was very accurate about what was going to happen short term. But like mid to long term, I, I've definitely adjusted. And I think I've, I've, I've talked about that quite a bit. Uh, over the past few years, this is where we're at. It, it, it was always my belief back then that eventually the rest of the world would be able to get far enough away from the USS Titanic that, that they could cut the rope from us and let us sink. They can't. They just can't do it. Um, China can't afford to, 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 to use its endgame on us economically. They would destroy their economy. It would be worse for them than it is for us. Right? I mean, they really can't afford it. They have to keep printing fake money to buy our fake bonds for our fake money and, and, and continue to, to, to be able to continue to sell to us. And they're trying to become an economic powerhouse, and they certainly are interested in becoming more economically powerful than us, and they certainly still have the potential to eventually do that, believe it or not. But they can't afford to sink us. We are part of their economic engine. Russia can't afford it because without a powerful United States economy, you have a, a, such a dwindling demand for oil, the oil prices will go lower than they ever have, and Russia's broke. The United Kingdom is so tied to us at the hip that they can't allow it to happen. So the whole world is in this mess together. We have a global economy. So no one's going to trigger it from outside. No one's going to trigger it from outside. I still believe there'll be an economic reset. They'll change the money. That, that's always been my main concern, and I've always pointed that out. And they eventually have to change the e economics of things because this is unsustainable. Um, the biggest threat I see to the economy now is, is really in two places. It's the student loan crisis. Forget calling it a bubble. It's a crisis. It's a crisis on all sides. There's so many ways that it's vulnerable now. Because they're not convincing enough kids to be stupid and go into debt for more money than the last group of kids. See, it's a Ponzi scheme. And it's a multi-trillion dollar industry that's about to crumble over the next five years, ten years, fifteen years. And then on top of it, aggravating it and then being its own problem altogether is this whole automation issue. Inflation doesn't really bother me at this point. I know that sounds like heretical. But the reality is, do you know how much money they'd have to inflate to, to, to print to inflate the monetary supply at this point? 
Do, I mean, do you even can you even get your head around it? It's 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 such a large amount of money. And remember, inflation is not just the quantity of money. And this is something I said all the way back then, and people didn't get it back then, and people still don't get it today. You can print a shitload more money unless it moves and multiplies through the economy. We call that the velocity of money. It doesn't cause inflation. They've been trying to kickstart inflation for years now, and they really can't get it done. There's inflation in the food supply and the basic needs, but overall inflation is very, very non-existent almost. It's more like a stagflation of the 70s. What I would say is... You have to be prudent with your own economy. And you have to stop, stop really thinking about the economy at large other than in protecting your investments and things like that, knowing when to bail out. And you have to start thinking about managing your economy as though you're own, your own little independent nation. And, and you have to manage your economy beyond dollars. And, and I, I'm conventional thinking where you're saying, okay, we'll also diversify into certain securities. Uh, dividend-producing stocks, typical stuff. Uh, alternative currencies like Bitcoin, gold and silver, all of that stuff, right? But I also mean, you, like the stuff we talk about too. You got to be building the social capital, building the skill sets, building the knowledge, so that you're adaptable to to this new economy. Because, like we said in the history segment today, it's 1876 right now, guys. That's what this is like, and the change that's coming is going to make what happened back there look like a freaking joke. And the problem is that change created enormous opportunity for people. Even though jobs were lost, every job that was lost created three or four new potential jobs. There is no new potential jobs in the numbers to replace what will be lost. For every one person that becomes an automated autom automation systems engineer... That's installing and maintaining and designing and building these things. 20 jobs are going to be lost. So the economic problem in the future is going to be how do we monetize contributions to society that are not generally thought of as work or labor? How do we create an economic system where people do get money, but not just for existing. What can we do to create a society like that? And some people would say, well, that's utopian thinking. At this point, it's not utopian thinking. It's survival thinking. Because what are you going to do? And See, the companies are in this too with a mess. They need to automate to survive, because if they don't, their competitors will. But if they automate sufficiently, then they drive down the purchasing power of the people they used to employ, and they don't have anything to sell anything to. This is the economic crisis, and this is global. This is global. The opportunities, though, are going to be things like, yeah, I could buy the food at the supermarket that's farmed by robots, but I want to buy you know, better quality food that's grown down the street, maybe by a guy using robots that are grown in his backyard. Farm bot. Again, I call it garden bot. But there's going to be a lot of opportunity to find niches and to develop skill and to develop your own markets and to develop, you know, an entertainment business which is or an education business, which is kind of what this is. And it's not like it's economic oblivion, But it's an incredible economic disruption and shift. 
And, and the big problem is most of you guys are about my age. The, 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 the mainstay of my audience is like 30 to 50. We're in a tough spot with this. The younger population, as they come through it, will be hitting their prime years as the adjustments started to happen. We're going to be heading out. And we really need to start thinking about managing our lives like we're managing a business from an economic standpoint. hope that helps. Let's take another one. Jack, this is Scott in Texas. I had a question about uh, putting a grape trellis over a dog run. Uh, would this make the grapes unedible? You know, trying to hit two birds with one stone, have the grape trellis, and have the shade for the dogs. I uh, just wanted to hear your comments on it. Thanks. So this is a big maybe, right? So what you're going to have to think about is deferring urine flow and how you're dealing with solid waste. Because if you just put the vines right up against the uh, the the kennel and the dogs are you know lifting a leg and peeing on them, they're going to have an adverse effect on the plants even if its ability to grow. Secondly, dog solid waste, dog shit, is not something that should be used to fertilize without composting, right? Uh, and it's it's even a harsh thing to compost. You have to treat dog dog shit like human shit from a composting standpoint. It's like a one year serious breakdown thing and that's why I'm kind of a fan of you let the yeah if you have a big yard or whatever the dog craps out in the yard and 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 then it doesn't take long for it to go away it really between insects and the sun baking it and everything like that you know it's those of you with suburban lots that need somebody with a poober scooper business to come deal with it for you or something because it's so much in such a small area well you're replicating that with a dog run all right so you it, it all depends on how you're dealing with that If it's just, you know, some overspray, I guess you'd say, and, uh, you know, maybe some, as you wash the, the area out, you know, is this as solid? Is it dirt floor? You know, is a dog run with a concrete floor and a dog run with a, you know, just basically set up on dirt, that's different. If they're, they're, they're crapping there and all, you're going to have an awful lot of kind of leaching in. And I, I don't know that I would worry about it being inedible for something that's a perennial like a grape, but it could be excessive over fertility and certainly salting from the urine and you might you know so if, if everything around there's kind of dead not growing right now so then another option is is there a grade you know a, a grade a, a slope to the area and if you can plant the grapes upgrade of that and maybe a few feet or even a few yards away from the run and then train the vines kind of on an angle up and onto the run, then you can make that work. Um, I'm also a big fan, though, of your pups should be taken well care of, and that means they should get good shade. And depending on the climate you're in and how long this takes, you might need to think about other methods of shade, whether it's shade cloth or something like that, to take care of your pups. So, You know, the, like two years from now, the vines will be up during the summer and it'll be shaded and the dogs will be, well, that's, that's great, but you've got to do something now. So those are the concerns I would have, and, and that's I'd try to kind of piece that one together. Uh, but overall, I love the idea. Why not give them a, a great... And it, let's, let's look at it another way. Even if you had a concern with consumption, you're better off with natural shade for the animals than, than synthetic shade in your long-term situation. Uh, and I don't know what climate you're in. I don't think you mentioned it, but you might be in a situation where you really don't want the animals shaded in the wintertime. You want sun getting on them. 
So if that's the case, then a natural deciduous shade like grapevines or deciduous trees would be a really great way to go. Um, looking at your solar aspect, you might decide that instead of putting up grapevines, it may be better to figure out, well, how does the sun move here, come a bit away from it, plant fruit trees or nut trees or just you know some sort of uh, ornamental tree and provide them shade from the trees as the trees come out of her, or something like a willow. So, you know, I know you kind of want grapes, and if you want to do it, give it a shot, but, you know, a weeping willow gets huge fast as long as you give it enough water, and you, you almost can't give a willow too much fertility. It doesn't care. It doesn't give a damn. What it needs is a lot of moisture, so as long as you can provide the moisture, you know, a great big weeping willow that ends up encompassing that run, that could be really cool, too. So don't get stuck on one idea. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, Shane from Grayson County. I had a quick question for you. My wife has a small cake business, and she has a client that uh, she just delivered a cake to a couple of days ago, and now is demanding a, a uh, half refund because of really just nothing. Um, the only difference is that she wasn't able to, to deliver the flowers that she wanted. Instead, she had to substitute because of the weather a different flower. It's really about the only damage, but the woman's threatening that if she does not uh, give her at least 50% refund that she's going to write reviews and have uh, negative reviews and then write, have all of her family members write negative reviews. I thought you'd be a good person to ask. Uh, no, defamation of character uh, is a very difficult charge, but maybe just a way that you can stop someone from uh, from writing things that are negative that are not true or help to kind of mediate the, uh, the situation. Your time, I, re- I expect, or I appreciate it, thanks. Honestly, I'd tell her to tear her ass, go for it. Because what she's going to find is that her, if she even carries through with her threat, her friends are not going to really get on board with this whole uh, write bad reviews about a company you never did any business with. So she might put up a bad review here or there, and almost every site that anybody uses where people can do that, the person that's being reviewed has an opportunity to respond. And I would just respond with exactly what happened and say, you know, in this type of situation, we're not giving a partial review. She accepted it. It was fine when we delivered it. And then later she decided she wanted this and we're not going to do it. But I'd tell her go for it. And then I would just, I would just suggest that when you go buy an item on Amazon, there's almost always one or two people that say it sucks. But it's, it's the, the 10, 15, 20 that say it's great that you listen to. And when that ratio is there, they're fine. So talk to her other customers and her friends and family and say, please go here and give me good reviews. And, and put this behind you and screw her. In fact, I would tell her, you know what, if you had asked in a reasonable manner, I might have even considered this, but since you've threatened me, you can go pound sand. As far as defamation or anything like that, unless she says something that's untrue, you have no case. Her opinion is you should have given the 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 the, re, the refund or whatever. That that's something you, you know you don't want to waste your time in court with. The reality though is for most people with a business like you have, how many people do you think go? Gee, I'm gonna I'm gonna Google all of this and, and and do all kinds of checks before I order a cake from somebody. You know how much business is she getting from positive reviews on sites like this right now? And, and you'll probably find next to none. Next to none. And, again, I would just counter any place that she does her nastiness that you happen to find uh, with getting two or three people to go on there and give positive reviews and, 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 and do a response 
basically saying this person was unreasonable, she was hateful, she threatened me, she's carried out her threat, and I can tell you this is the type of customer I don't want. If you're like this person, please don't do business with me. I'm dead serious. And don't lose any sleep over this. We live in a day and age where people think that because they put something bad on the Internet about somebody that anybody's going to read it or give a shit. And most of the things people do like this, no one cares. Now, if you look up a, a business and they have 10, 15 reviews from different people and they're unanswered, well, that's different. Now, if she does get people who never did business with you posting false reviews, then the first thing to do is you contact the owner, uh, administrator of the site and say, these reviews about my company are not only untrue, they're by people that never did any business with us. And you ask them to help you with getting things like IP addresses and stuff like that. And you might find they're all her. And then you sue her ass hard. You sue her ass hard if that happens. But you know what's going to most likely happen? She'll go out on Yelp or something, post one review, feel like she's done something, and go away, and you'll never hear from her again. And you don't have time to F with people like this. Don't, and this is what you don't do. You don't cave in. You don't cave in. You tell her, pound sand where the sun don't shine and keep pounding until it comes out of your mouth. Because at least that'll shut you up and the world won't have to deal with your mouth anymore. That's how I feel about people like this. You know, um, They're just not worth your time. And they don't have anywhere near the power that they think they do. What they're trying to do is intimidate you. And in their hearts, they know no one really... Who is this person? Does anybody give a shit what she says? Most likely not. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Richie from Oklahoma. And I have a question about bottling muscadine wine. We had a great uh, crop of muscadines this year, and we made most of it into jelly. So we decided to make wine for the first time. We've never made anything like this before. So we found an article on Field and Stream, and it was pretty easy, so we went with it. Now we have four gallons fermenting in plastic jugs, and in, in nine weeks it'll be time to bottle this. And I just want to know what your thoughts are on the best kind of bottles to use. Should we use screw-on caps? Do they make flip-top bottles we could use, or do we need to use corks? Um, just any other um, tips or tricks, let me know. Thanks. All right. Well, if you want your, your wine to look like proper wine bottles, then you want to either save or buy your standard wine bottles and go to somewhere like Midwest Home Brewing Supply or uh, Williams Brewing or any place like that, and you can get a corker, and you can get some corks, and you, you boil your corks. and that will, or you uh, Actually, I've never done corks. I'm not sure if you boil them or you just use sorbates or what, but you sanitize your corks and use a corker and put them in a bottle. And, and that's, that's kind of the, the traditional way. I say the heck with that. that that's too much work. If you're doing something that you're going to age in a wine cellar for five years or something like that and, and whatever, and you want to like make your own labels and all, then, yeah, go that way. But otherwise, no. Um, screw top wine bottles. Here's my issue with those. They'll never seal quite like they did before. Now. I've mentioned a gentleman named Buddy Shoemaker, who was the winemaking guy in, in Pennsylvania. This man had social capital through the roof. You brought him grapes or fruit or whatever you want to make wine out of, and he made it. He kept half of it and gave you the other half, and, and basically he did all the work. His standard thing that he'd hand you your wine in was a one-gallon glass jug with a screw top. 
but he was making table wines kind of like muscadine that he knew weren't going to be sitting around for 10 years. You know, you might make you some wine in September and maybe some of it would be on the table for Thanksgiving, maybe a little bit left around for Christmas. And it was fine for that. If I was going to do this, I would not use one-gallon screw-top bottles. Because I, I, I believe, you know, once you kind of open it, you let the air into it, it, it it's now time to, to consume it in a relatively uh, reasonable period of time. So the 750-milliliter, you know, standard wine bottle size bottles that have screw-tops on them, if you know someone that drinks a lot of wine or you drink a lot of wine like that, you can save those bottles. And, yeah, you can fill them and you can put the lid on them, and they're probably fine. What I would personally do is I would take a, a pot, like a double boiler pot, you know, one sitting in water and the other, and I'd put wax in it, and I'd melt wax at any kind of wax you want. It's not going to go inside the bottle, so it doesn't have to certainly be beeswax or something like that. And then I would dip my bottles in the wax, and I would wax seal around the lid if it was going to be, you know, any type of aging, any significant type of aging. And the good thing about that is when you when you later, like, just take a knife and cut the side of that and peel that wax off, you can throw it back in a storage container. You can use it over and over and over again. There's no reason you can't. So that would be how I did it. What, what I have gone to for 90% of my bottling, I use swing top Grolsch-style bottles. And I buy them. I buy them from a company called Mr. Beer. They make 22- and 16-ounce bottles. They probably make 12s, but I'm not going down to 12-ounce bottle. And I do most of my meads and my ciders that are going to be bottled in 16-ounce swing-top bottles. Uh, in a gallon, when you do a gallon, you end up getting about six to seven bottles and a little bit that you put in a pint jar or something and stick in the refrigerator for that night as your reward for doing your bottling. And, and that, to me, has been the easiest. The other option is to go with standard style, you know, returnable style beer bottles and get a swing top capper, which you can get at Williams or Midwest or whatever, and, and, and use beer caps. And you open them with a, with a church key, right? There's nothing about, like, that doesn't look right for wine, but there's no problem with that. If I was going to do that for wine, they make 22 ounce bottles, which, you know, um, and that's what I would go to because it's, more of a close to a proper wine size, you know. A, a standard bottle of wine has about four glasses in it. So, you know, if you if you're bottling 12 ounces, you've got, well, you know, you've at four ounce glasses, you've got three glasses to a beer bottle. I guess you could do that, but I would go with 16 or 22 ounce bottles. It just makes your life easier. Bigger bottles, less work on bottling day. Um, now you're supposed to sanitize your bottles and everything. And I'm not going to say it's a bad idea, and you can look up how to do that. But this is what I've come up with over the years. The second a bottle's empty that I'm going to reuse, I put very, very hot tap water in it. I shake it out, and I clean it so there's no residue in it. I set it upside down, like on a towel on the side of the, 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 the sink, and I let it completely dry. I put it away. The day I'm going to bottle, I turn the hot water in the, in the faucet back on. I rinse it out really good, and I bottle. That's it. Now, for years... I sanitized, I'd put them in the, sometimes what I would do, I'd put them in the dishwasher and I'd run just the, 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 the short cycle and the heat dry and that certainly works, but it ain't necessary. Okay. Uh, you also need to decide, do you want to stabilize your wine with sorbates? Basically kill any yeast that are left to make sure it doesn't kind of kick back on, but I've never found that necessary. If you fully ferment till you got a good clear, well attenuated wine. I've never found that necessary. I know Buddy Shoemaker certainly didn't do it. Um, so that's up to you. But I'll tell you what. 
I used to use a bottling wand, which is a little stick and a thing and a siphon hose and all that. This is what I've gone to now. I have a, for the one-gallon batch, is a little mini racking cane. I'll put a link to where you can get them on Amazon today. Basically, you attach a, a piece of plastic rubber tubing to it, and then you stick it in, you push it down, it starts a siphon. So whenever I'm bottling something that's been sitting and fermenting in a bottle, I never bottle straight out of that bottle. I rack one last time to a bottling container. And what I used to do is just take another one-gallon thing and rack to that and then start the siphon with the bottling. Nope, 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 nope. I found these two-and-a-half-gallon carboys, they call them, but they really look like a jug from a place called Uline. They're dirt cheap, they're food grade, and they have a an on-off spigot at the bottom of them, and it, it's it's dead flat, so you get every drop out. So what I do is I take my one gallon of wine, mead, whatever, and I have a little footstool for my grandson to be able to get up onto the countertops and stuff like that. I set it up on the counter right next to the sink, and I put my Uline carboy with the spigot turned off, and they've been nice enough to mark it on and off, in the sink. I take my racking cane, bloop, everything goes in that carboy, okay? Then I can take the residue, you know, the last little bit that's in the bottle, they call it the angel share, and, and the, 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 the tube and all, and I put it in the other side of the sink so it doesn't make a mess, and I take the carboy and I set it up on top of that little footstool, and then I, and, and it overhangs the sink, so if I spill any, I spill in the sink. If you're going to spill, spill in the sink, right? And I take my bottles and I turn the little faucet on, And I fill the bottle up, and I turn it off, and I close the bottle. And again, I use the swing, swing top bottles. So I'll put a link to where you can get the swing top bottles in both 22 and 16 ounces on Amazon if you want to buy them. And I will put a link to the mini racking cane. And everything else, I would suggest go to Midwest Home Brewer or Williams Brewing or somewhere like that for, for that stuff. All right? So hopefully that helps you. With that, we have wrapped up another episode of the show. I want to remind you, if you like this show and the work I do and want to support it, you can do that by becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members. You can sign up there. I'll get you discounts. It's close to 70 companies that I have arranged real discounts. I mean, actual discounts that actually put money back in your pocket on the kind of things you're probably buying anyway. And you, again, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more about that there next up the other way you can support the show and it's like this the super easy no cost way to support this show is whenever you're going to shop on amazon go to tspaz.com instead of amazon t-s-p-a-z tspaz.com instead of amazon click the link that says click here to shop for any and all items on amazon when you go to amazon just buy your stuff and you support the show It's that easy. It's that simple. If you like this show, if you listen to it daily, when you're going to go to Amazon, use tspaz.com. I mean, how easy is that? It works out for everybody. And uh, in, in return, Amazon gets a, a great advertisement every day, and they get a great review every day. Today's product I have, uh, I covered the Greystone frying pans in the, in the past. Today I've got the Greystone 11.5-inch nonstick griddle. I've talked about Greystone before, so I'll be brief with it today. But it's basically a stone coating that goes on this cookware. that You can heat it up, and it doesn't make toxic chemicals going into your food like Teflon and all the other stuff. And it works. And you can use metal utensils with it. It's badass. I've been using the uh, frying pan for about two and a half months now. And I'm in love with it. 
And that's why I decided to add the Greystone uh, nonstick griddle. So it's a square griddle. And I just thought it gives me a little more versatility. It gives me two pots instead of one. Two is one, one is none. And the truth is I'm so impressed with Greystone that other than the stuff that needs to be cooked on cast iron, I'm doing it exclusively now. And I'm slowly replacing all my cookware. I'll keep some stainless stuff uh, for cooking in the oven and some cast iron for cooking at higher temperatures in the oven and doing things that only cast iron can really do well. But all of my other stuff is slowly being replaced. As a graystone pan comes in, uh, one of the other pans or pots, because I've got way too much crap, goes into a box, and that box goes to Goodwill once a month. We take stuff down there to donate it. And I finally found a cookware that's nonstick that I can recommend. It's not cheap but it's also not expensive for what it is. I believe it's kind of one of those, it may not be a lifetime purchase, probably a 10-year at least. And, and that's a lot of time to get out of cookware if you cook as much as I do. Uh, I love to cook, and I love anything that makes my job cooking in the kitchen easier. Last night I used this thing, and I made some uh, pork chops, big, thick pork chops, seared the hell out of them. They came out beautiful. And uh, then this morning, one of them was left over. I chopped it up. I mixed it with duck eggs and uh, salsa. And I found these new tortillas. I want to put these on, uh, on Amazon for you, but they don't have them there. Uh, I'll have to find it. I'll, I'll tell you guys tomorrow what they are, but they're like a spinach and flax. They're like four carbs or something like that for a big-ass tortilla. So now I can have breakfast burritos again. And are they as good as like a good flour, thick, fluffy tortilla? No, but they're pretty damn good. And so I cooked, you know, this with cheese and sticky stuff. And, you know, when I was done with it, I just took it, ran it under the hot water, and boom, cleaned like no effort. These things are awesome. You can check out that review. But remember, you can always do your shopping at Amazon.com through tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. This is a new song for me. It's by the White Buffalo and the Forest Rangers, and it's from the TV series Sons of Anarchy. Now, you might think since I'm an anarchist and I talk about it all the time, I would like love this show. It's about a biker gang. I have never seen this show in my life. I've seen commercials for it. That's about it. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the name of this biker gang in it is the uh, Sons of Anarchy Motorcycle Club Redwood, okay, uh, original. And it's it's the anacronym for it's Sam Crow, S-A-M-C-R-O. Now, what do you call a group of crows? Is it a flock? No. A group of crows is called, some of you out there shouting it, it's a murder. This song is called Come Join the Murder, and it's not Come Join the Killing, though I, from what I know of this show, it's not too far of a stretch, but... The group of crows, right? And it's a story of tragedy. It's a story of a guy that kind of was born into this life. He was his father's son. His father was one of these types of guys, and he was lured in. Apparently it was from one of the series finales of it. Uh, he was lured into this outlaw biker life, and it's nothing but tragedy. There was so many things it was promised to be, and in the end, he realizes... He knew it all along and did it anyway. It also just sounds good. I mean, this is this is great, deep, meaningful music. And it was written for the final episode of, I don't know if it's the whole series or just from uh, one season or what have you. But the, the kind of the ending is that he's decided he has to separate himself from Sam Crow. Well, the only way out in a box. Some of you know where that's from. That's from a little bit funny movie, right? In a box, right? Okay, Jamie Kennedy. Um, 
Malibu, right? Um, but but basically, he he realizes that if he's making the decision to walk away, he's probably making a decision that you know he'll, he'll end up dead. But he has to. And I found a lyrics meaning from people that like can highlight text and say what they think it means and all that are fans of the show that talk about how it ties into the whole storyline. So I have a link, not just to where you can see this on YouTube today, but to those lyrics meanings if you want to, to learn more. I think my takeaway from this, though, is there's a lot of promise out there for people that break from the system. But there's a right way and a wrong way to break from the system. And when you break from the system in the wrong way, it always ends in tragedy. That doesn't mean that you can't break from the system. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Outside my window I hear him calling I hear him sing Burns me with his eyes of gold to embers He sees all my sins He reads my soul One day that birdie spoke to me Like Martin Luther, like Pericles Come join the murders Come fly with black We'll give you freedom From the human trap
Never 